it's all well and good to have these principles and you should have them, but like you should also expect that humans are infinite in their capacity for creativity and workarounds. And you will not as a human or as a set of humans be able to anticipate all the reactions to your principles. And you have to continue to exist to be able to have principles that matter. And so there are going to be these moments inevitably where you your priors are totally turned on their head and you have to figure out, okay, well, now that we know that, what is it we really believe here? What is it we're trying to do? Are we even able to do this thing the way we thought? And if not, what's next? And that is a constant, constant process in trust and safety. That is like a daily process in trust and safety. That's part of what makes the field so interesting, but it's also, I think, part of what makes the field so challenging to understand both inside the field and, and outside of the field. I'm Evelyn Dueck. And this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 28th, 2022. Today, we're bringing you another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on the online information ecosystem. Quinta Jurassic left me unattended this week while on some well-deserved leave, but the show must go on. So I spoke to Charlotte Wilmer, who has been working in content moderation literally longer than just about anyone. Charlotte is now the Executive Director of the Trust and Safety Professionals Association, an organization that brings together professionals that write and enforce the rules for what's fair game and what's not on online platforms. Before that, she worked in trust and safety at Pinterest, and before that, she built the very first safety operations team at Facebook. I asked Charlotte what it was like trying to build a content moderation system from the ground up, what has changed since those early days, spoilers, it's a lot, and, of course, if she had any advice for Twitter's new owner, given all her experience helping keep platforms safe. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 28th, the professionalization of content moderation. So Charlotte, we are talking as the world is reeling from the fact that Elon Musk has actually uh, managed to acquire Twitter. Um, and I can't actually think of a better person to talk to in this moment because you have literally practiced <laughs> trust and safety longer than just about anyone. Uh, but what I'd rather do than jump in with another hot take is try and contextualize that and sort of talk about the field more generally and why this is a really tough nut to crack. So you have a quote from Wired in your Twitter bio that says that you are half of online speech moderation's first couple. Uh, <laughs> tell us about why you've got that and, and what your path is uh, to where you are. What that quote is, is uh, my husband and I both work in online trust and safety. So way, way back in the before times, I met my husband, Dave Wilner, in college, and uh, he wanted to be an archaeologist, and I wanted to specialize in art and artifact repatriation for uh, Interpol or the FBI. And of course, uh, lots of jobs uh, in both those fields during the 2006 to 2008 financial crisis. So we didn't get those jobs. Uh, we all had to move home. He moved home to New York. I moved home to California and took uh, a local job. I needed to save some money to go back to art history grad school. And so um, a local job uh, for me was customer support at Facebook. And that's where I started. My plan was to just spend one year doing uh, you know, password resets and then be on my merry way to get my master's in art history. And that didn't happen. And some of that didn't happen because going back to grad school in sort of 2007, 2008 seemed like a really a really difficult idea, I'd say. But a lot of that didn't happen because I realized that working at Facebook was really, really fun and really, really interesting and really, really important. You know, in those early days, 
I started at Facebook before we had international users, you know, it was still very much like a network space in the United States. And you could feel even in those early days, how swiftly the winds were moving uh, and how fast that user growth was. And so I ended up responsible for uh, a lot of the international school networks and a lot of the international local networks. I was their first international support lead. And it's because I spoke like any French, the way we sourced that in the beginning was we went around and we're sort of like, okay, who took Spanish in high school? You did fantastic. You can read these password reset emails. And it was very, um, it was very seat of the pants, I'd say. But what you learned uh, very quickly at any job in Facebook, but especially in, in customer support, is that a lot of people had problems that went beyond, uh, I can't get my password to, to go into the box, or I can't upload my photo. Um, very quickly, it became, I uploaded a photo and oops, it was the wrong photo. Oh, someone else uploaded a photo and I didn't like it and these sorts of things. Um, and so that was, for me, really the beginning of my journey in trust and safety. My uh, then boyfriend, uh, Dave, moved out from New York because he had uh, realized that uh, New York wasn't a great place to be working in 2008. So he took a job alongside me, take, resetting those passwords. What we ended up doing was he focused on a lot of the, we didn't have like a, a standard set of rules at the time. Like when I joined the, the team, which was a great team, but when I joined the team, we didn't really have like written out rules for these are the principles behind what we're doing here. It was more like, if you see a boob, watch out. You know, it was like these, if, if it makes you feel bad, take it down. Like not great principles or indeed any principles. So Dave, when he arrived, he had a background in um, anthropology. And so he was like, well, we need to like be a little more scientific and systematic about this. And he ended up writing the first set of principle-based rules for Facebook. And obviously those have taken on a life of their own as the years have gone by, but his team was responsible for the writing of the policy and mine ended up being responsible for the enforcing of the policy. So this is a super long answer to like, why, why is this my Twitter bio? It's because we were at least, I think, the first couple, like literally the first couple to be working in, in online trust and safety in this capacity. And we ended up having this work partnership um, that really mirrored our personal partnership as well. Do you remember what those early conversations were like? Where do you start when you're, when you're trying to design a content moderation system? I think you approach it with the lessons you've learned in life, right? One of the things that I think actually makes the field somewhat actually quite accessible, though we'll talk about this later, that doesn't, that doesn't give you the leg up you would hope it would, but something that makes trust and safety accessible as a practice is in our lives, like we, we all do sort of think about rules. We, we have rules, we, we make and enforce and follow rules in our daily lives. So in that sense, you know, I think a lot of people have an instinct on where to start when it comes to content moderation. If you look at sort of the, the way things developed from at least my experience of the early days, I think that there was a lot of going in and like seeing what worked. Uh, you know, in those early days, it was it was super fun and super challenging. It was like opening a giant puzzle book, but there was no ability to turn to the back to see the answer. Like the only way you could get the answer was trying things out and seeing what happened. And especially in like the earliest days of Facebook, that was almost more of a fun exercise than anything else because the stakes were somewhat lower. It's not that the stakes were zero, but you know, when, when it was still very much a, a student's website in the United States, 
you know, there was only so much trouble people could get themselves into at that stage. Like we didn't, there were no videos on Facebook at then. There were barely photos. There were like none of these other features. And there were, there was very limited ability to link to other things across the internet. And so it was much more of this, you, you heard it called often like a walled garden. And what that meant is we could really like try things out and see like, okay, well, will this work or not? And that trial and error, I think you, everyone who's setting up a, a moderation system does have to go through some really salient examples of, of the way that worked, certainly in the early days at, at Facebook and a number of sort of parallel platforms. You know, I think we came in with some assumptions that proved not to be true. So a really good example I like to use on this is actually real name policy. The principle behind the real name policy, at least when I arrived at Facebook, was very much that if we ask people to use their real names and tie their presence to their real identities, they won't behave badly. And that like, I don't know, that kind of worked for like 18 months, maybe. But I think what we all began to realize quite quickly, you know, both at Facebook and, you know, in the world is that, yes, some people are perfectly cool uh, using their real name to do bad things. Um, and we see that, you know, that that's just like standard now. But there was this like magical brief moment where it seemed like maybe that could work. And when we realized it didn't work, it was like, okay, well, what else is going to work to both mitigate abuse and to ensure, you know, real identity? Because it turns out like real names don't ensure real identity, quote unquote, real names. There's a whole world of harms wrapped up into that, that we just did not have the context for the understanding for in those early days. And you know, I, I had left Facebook by the time they really had to grapple with a lot of the, the impact of that policy. But it's a great example of where like, oh, turns out, you know, you F around and you find out, right? And, and there's real consequences to the way that those policies are, are implemented. Another example of this is, you know, I think there was this impulse up front that like free speech was a defining good. Like as long as you could keep the free the, the speech incredibly free, that was going to like solve a lot of the discourse problems. And I'm not here to be like free speech is bad, actually. But I think what we did learn is like maybe not so many Nazis should be able to say things on the internet, right, or in, in these public forums because there is actually then a suppression of other types of speech. You know, it's those it's that type of interplay that I think we all came into the world with some like notions about, but we had to like try a bunch of stuff out at scale as a society to then see like, oh, it does work that way. Or actually it doesn't work that way. And we thought it would, but now, you know, our hypothesis was wrong. And what do we do next? What you're highlighting, I think, is how dynamic and fluid the content moderation ecosystem is. You know, we often think of people sitting back and formulating rules, you know, as they think about John Stuart Mill and what are the best principles that we should have here and then, you know, going about and enforcing these ideologically perfect rules in practice, but that actually it's a lot more dynamic and fluid than that and, and recursive based on, you know, how they can actually be implemented, but then also how users respond to those rules because they don't just exactly. sort of keep doing the same thing no matter what the rules are. Right. There's always this unknown input. And, you know, right. I'm sure this is something you have to deal with in like science as well, right? Like things happen and you're like, oh, I didn't expect that. And now I need to reformulate my priors because we have to account for that. Yishan Wong, who was uh, CEO at Reddit for a time and who actually was at, at Facebook during the same time I was, he had this whole thread a while ago, I think after the January 6th insurrection, he had this thread about Omega events and 
his whole point was basically like, it's all well and good to have these principles and you should have them, but like you should also expect that humans are infinite in their capacity for creativity and workarounds. And you will not as a human or as a set of humans be able to anticipate all the reactions to your principles. And you have to continue to exist to be able to have principles that matter. And so there are going to be these moments inevitably where you your priors are totally turned on their head and you have to figure out, okay, well, now that we know that, what is it we really believe here? What is it we're trying to do? Are we even able to do this thing the way we thought? And if not, what's next? And that is a constant, constant process in trust and safety. That is like a daily process in trust and safety. That's part of what makes the field so interesting, but it's also, I think, part of what makes the field so challenging to understand both inside the field and, and outside of the field. Yeah. Can I ask about that? operational side that you just mentioned of like, can we even do this thing? Um, Mm -hmm. Because you said that you were, you know, responsible for enforcement as well. And I imagine that the enforcement side is really different these days, like the technology, the technology, but also the sheer humans, human resources that are available for content moderation are completely different to how they were in the early days. And so, you know, what are the biggest changes that we've seen in the last sort of decade and a half in terms of the operations of content moderation? And how has that changed? Uh, the way that companies think about their rules. Because I think sometimes what I see, and I'd be curious for your reaction to this, is this like can implies ought problem. So mm-hmm. as companies have more technological capacity, as they are able to do some sort of moderation, the, the thought is that they should, that they ought to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, the tools often fail in ways that are underappreciated and the, t- mm-hmm. the technology is not as magical as um, some might think. So yeah, I'm curious how the, the operational and enforcement side of content moderation affects the whole ecosystem. Absolutely. I mean, I think the main change I would highlight is that we are in fact better through machines at this than we were in the beginning, right? You know, when I was saying earlier about like, well, we were like resetting passwords, there was a time where like all the passwords at Facebook had to be reset manually in plain text and sent through email because there wasn't a machine that was doing that yet, right? So, right, (laughs) but like, that's the way it was for a while. We were having to ask people literally like the security question. And if they picked the, the security question, like we had, this is just like scuttlebutt, but there was a security question we had that was, what were your fa- what are your favorite pizza toppings? Which I guess seemed like a good question to ask college students, but like, guess what? <laughs> People change their preferences all the time. And it could have been pepperoni, but like, then now you're vegetarian. You'd never answer that two years later when we're asking you and oops, you got locked out of your account, right? And so you'd be doing these back and forth with people being like, but I swear it's definitely mushrooms. And it's like, yeah, I bet it is now, but it wasn't when you said this. So Anyway, that has gotten a lot better. And I don't want to undersell that as like, like, yeah, yeah, of course, technology gets better. Technology has been transformative in trust and safety's professionals' ability to do their jobs, um, whether that's being able to sort of connect behavior back to a particular account, whether that's understanding at scale, how, like, how many bad photos has this person posted? You know, how, how many times have they tried to initiate unwanted contact through message or whatever it is, right? All the way up to uh, artificial intelligence, which... Uh, has its downsides is, is what I would say. It is not um, it is not something you can just set and forget. But you know, machine learning has really helped us like identify much faster and much better where human attention needs to be at any given point. Like all of that has made a really big difference on the operational side. But you are exactly right to point out that systems fail and technology fails, and it actually fails a lot more than I think people expect. 
there's a lot of joking right now on Twitter about like, oh, like can't wait until like Twitter's algorithm is open source and unveiled. And like, what do people that what do people think that's going to be? Like, it's going to be a bunch of numbers and code, and it's going to be like unparsable to a human brain. And like, it's hard in that circumstance to sort of explain to people, oh, and this is exactly where it went wrong, because it's like it's it's impossible almost to read it as a human and be like, oh, this is at least what it's getting right. But the scale at which a lot of these platforms operate means that even if you are using incredibly good technology, all it takes is like 50 seconds of outage or like one misplaced comma and things can go horribly wrong. So tell us then about what you're doing now um, to help sort of bring all of this into a little bit more of order from chaos. Tell us about the organization that you're the executive director of, the, the Trust and Safety Professionals Association. What is it and what are you aiming to do with it? Yes, I uh, I love my job, which I've always been able to say. I'm very privileged to be able to say that. But I now lead the Trust and Safety Professional Association. Uh, we are a professional association. That's in the name. But I mention it because our members are all individual professionals. Uh, we receive a lot of our funding from our corporate supporter companies, and that gives all their individual employees membership in TSPA as an investment in them and their careers. But it doesn't mean that those companies are members. It's the individual practitioners who contribute to our community and set the direction for our, our organization. And that's an important, I lay all of that out as the intro because it's an important distinction. What we're doing is building a community of practice between practitioners rather than a partnership between corporate entities. Our goal is to connect the people working in online trust and safety with each other to support each other along that journey. Historically, it the work of trust and safety has felt honestly uh, like a pretty lonely field. Um, it's a job that can be really hard to explain to your family and your friends. My mom, I'm 15 years in, my mom still has no idea what I do. And it's not because I haven't tried to explain it. And, you know, historically, there wasn't really a way to meet other people doing this job at other companies or in other contexts. And so it's been hard to build a professional network of peers. And I think that's especially true for those of us who joined the field during the pandemic. We're trying to really defragment all these siloed professional circles into one single connected body outside of the strictures of specific employers so we can all learn more quickly together. So TSPA, we create events and spaces for people to meet their peers across the industry. We bring in speakers on relevant topics. We provide space for people to present what they've been working on, that they're proud of, that they want to share to people who they know will really be able to appreciate it. We connect people working on the same sorts of problems so they can help each other think through those problems. They don't feel alone in the work. So the professionalization of an industry often comes with sort of a degree of, of standardization and accreditation. And trust and safety, you know, we were just talking about how recently it it was that it was just sort of a few of you sitting around in a room trying to work out what the rules should be. Uh, mm -hmm. And here we are, it's sort of on a on a turbocharging through the life cycle of a of a profession. And I'm curious how you see it maturing uh, from that infancy as you build up this professional association, do you think there might be that kind of like accreditation or sort of standard set of skills that people are, are expected to have or training, you know, maybe akin to like lawyer or accountant or auditor professional associations? What's the vision for that kind of approach? Yeah. Before I get into the specifics on like certification, should we do it? I, I'd love to just talk a little bit about professionalization and what professionalization means, at least to us here at TSPA, I'd say that trust and safety historically has been a field that really attracts like 
to use an American phrase, really attracts Monday morning quarterbacks, uh, which is to say people, um, you know, who, who maybe aren't paying a lot of attention to the field saying, well, clearly this is easy and you just have to do things in this way and the problem would be solved. And I think you probably experienced this as someone who is connected to the field, right? Like encountering people who say, well, I know, I'll just like buy a social network and fix all the problems, <laughs> hypothetically, right? And like you having now spent a lot of time, uh, you know, with the field realizing eh, maybe it's not that simple, right? And on the face of it, like I can see why that is the impulse, why people can look at things like making rules of, on the internet or, you know, enforcing rules on the internet and saying like, oh, this is easy and you just have to do it this way and you'd fix it. Like I understand why that is because as I mentioned earlier, we all make and enforce and follow rules in our daily lives. So it's, it's tempting to think it is straightforward. But what people have to remember about the profession is that it's, it's, very much an industrial process at this point, even at the smaller companies, because we do have this emphasis on on consistent experiences, right? The example I like to use is like most of us know how to buy an apple, right? Like if I said to you, hey, uh, Evelyn, like go buy an apple at the store. You'd know what to do, right? You'd go to the well, store. I'm, you know, maybe a little too reliant on Amazon Prime. But yeah, could... oh yeah, well, there it is. Yeah, you'd click add to cart, right? But you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And like, there's two ways to do it. You click the cart or you go to the store. And, you know, you either pick out the apple or you ask someone else to pick out the apple. Well, okay, you, you pick it out. You, it doesn't have bruises. Seems like a good one. You put it in the cart. You, you stand in the line. You bag it. Maybe someone else bags it. Maybe use the self-checkout. Okay, there's some variations. You bring it home. Maybe you wash it before you put it in the fruit bowl or maybe after. That's sort of a difference in practice. Practice, but fundamentally, you got the apple, right? Congratulations. And like most of us could conceive of a plan where we have to buy like 20 apples, right? You just go and you get a bunch more apples. And most of us could do figure out like if you needed to get 100 apples, like, okay, you go to Costco, right? But what about like 5,000 apples? If you needed 5,000 apples, where would you go, right? Maybe you could like look up an orchard, but then you're like, oh, well, do I have to like rent a truck to transport 5,000 apples? When it was 100, I could do it, right? But like 5,000, maybe I need a different vehicle or like, where are you going to store them when you get them home? 5,000 apples. And if you like put them in a pile, how will you know if one in the middle starts to rot? And how do you stave off rot in a pile of 5,000 apples while we're at it? And like, oh, back at the orchard, did you select a variety of apple with like good storage life? It's sort of like more apples, more problems, right? <laughs> and now imagine it's 500,000 apples or it's 2 million apples and you need to get them from New Zealand to California and they have to be sell like sellable, right? They have to be in saleable condition. Now you go back, we were all pretty confident we could pick out an apple, right? But I doubt many of us would feel that same level of confidence at scale. And it's the same with trust and safety. So to TSBA, part of professionalization means helping the public recognize that trust and safety is a specific practice requiring specific skills. And that doesn't mean it's inaccessible, right? It, it is It is if anything, a practice that more people should be coming into. And a big part of our mission is helping to illustrate that to people who maybe say, oh, I, I don't think that job's for me. And be like, actually, maybe it's exactly for you, right? But you also can't just walk in off the street with a bunch of preconceived notions about how to buy one apple and apply it to two million, right? It, you can't walk in off the street and do it well. You have to learn from your users. You have to learn from the system in front of you. And you have to learn from each other as professionals. So Coming back to your question about standardization, because I promise this isn't just like the Apple's podcast. At TSBA, we don't necessarily expect a lot of the practices to become more standardized since the practice honestly has to vary so much in its application. What we try to do is help people learn the lessons that other professionals already had to learn 
often the hard way. And that could be as simple as like, hey, here is the on-call paging software that worked for my international team and it might work for yours too. It could be as complex as, as my own example. Like I worked on enforcing a real name policy for years and it turns out that has some associated harms that everybody should probably be aware of as they all weigh identity policies for their own practice, for their own platforms. Um, you know, here are some organizations you can work with. Here's some reading you can do. Here are the challenges that I've, you know, and my team faced came across when we were even trying to implement this, that like, if you really want to go down that road, you know, all right, but like, here's what you got to know, sharing those lessons of the road. So what we're about is less about being a standard setting body or an accreditation body. We are about being the place you can turn when you are ready to compile your first transparency report and you got to figure out what you're doing about it. Or um, you now unexpectedly lead uh, a fully remote team of people who are doing graphic content review and it's it's like really hard. Okay, who do you turn to for support on that? Um, if you're looking for uh, experiences implementing change management processes, right? We're the community that people can come to and, and have those conversations, which are sort of specialized, right? It's like, how big of a truck do I need for those 500,000 apples? And it turns out it's not a truck. It's definitely a train or a boat. We're about giving folks a leg up to help them at least make their own new and different mistakes, but ideally being able to establish you know, a common vocabulary and, and a welcoming community of practice that people can tap into regardless of where they are in their journey. And everyone can learn something and everyone can teach something. So you're called the Trust and Safety Professionals Association and not the Content Moderation uh, Professionals Association. And I'm curious to know how you think about the difference between those two. Oh, a classic. I love this question. There is a difference between trust and safety and content moderation, though what I would say is it, it depends on how broadly you think about content moderation. Many people think that content moderation is like a person looking at a piece of content and they're saying yes and they're saying no. And that, that is part of the practice of trust and safety. But I'd say that trust and safety is the system that that human saying yes and no sits within. So not all things in trust and safety are content, first of all. Like um, if you consider real life interaction platforms like ride sharing or home sharing or, or dating, like Godspeed to the dating platforms. There's also what we would call like infrastructure companies. So, so they don't even deal with individual pieces of content per se. So that's like video conferencing products or uh, CDNs, content delivery networks. So the, the lens of content moderation, sort of quote unquote, isn't fully sufficient to talk about the trust and safety challenges of those that those platforms deal with. But those are, in fact, what we need to be talking about when we talk about trust and safety. When we say trust and safety, we also mean things like like pre-moderation. So like probabilistic guesses on whether something is likely to be spam. Trust and safety is the way a platform might take your preferences into account. Like if you've hidden every political post in your feed for a year, like some platforms may learn not to show you that sort of content. So even though it's a decision that you are making, right, theoretically, it's shaping your experience the platform then gives you. That's a trust and safety decision. It's designing reporting flows and user education flows to be more transparent about why things do or don't violate the rules, uh, to make it clear when the team might have made a mistake on a particular call. It's designing and servicing those appeals flows so that people can say like, hey, I had this experience. It was weird. Like, bring my content back. Yes or no. It's also things like like government information requests. A government takedown requests, I'd say, are like a more clear form of content moderation. But trust and safety teams also do a lot of work on real world harm investigations, right? So various types of crime and abuse where you're working with, you know, law enforcement officers or or investigative bodies to understand like what, you know, what type of crime or was committed or what was the nature of it. 
and critically, and this is like, you know, not talked about enough, frankly, but you'll appreciate it, I think. It's things like training and, and quality assurance. And like I mentioned, change management processes. And those all sound like a little dry. I think when people are like, let's talk about trust and safety, they want to talk about, you know, I don't know, the sort of the the hot button, hot take kind of stuff. And I don't have a lot of people in my life who are given hot takes about quality assurance, but like quality assurance is the absolute backbone practice of trust and safety. So all of that is what we mean when we say trust and safety professionals or the, the practice of online trust and safety. It's everything that goes into making that ecosystem work. And so in that sense, content moderation is a, is a huge part of that, but they can't exist without each other. Yeah, listening to you talk, I'm realizing that my own definition of content moderation is a lot closer to your definition of, of trust and safety. So how do you think about the goal of those systems then, the goal of trust and safety, the goal of content moderation? I mean, in certain contexts, it might be quite easy to, to see what the what the goal is, um, you know, in particular in some of the most horrific and in terms of like illegal content and things like that. You can quite easily define that the, the goal is to get rid of as much of that content a, as possible. Um, but there are all sorts of other kinds of content moderation that, that happen. And, and we talked as well about the dynamic effects and things like that. And also the idea that at that scale, you know, content moderation is impossible to do perfectly. You're never going to get every decision right. So how do we think about evaluating success for, for content moderation beyond the most obvious, you know, you want to avoid the epic failures? <laughs> How can we develop standards or benchmarks to evaluate companies against each other? Do you, do you have any ideas of what good content moderation looks like? It depends so deeply on sort of two sets of goals, I'd say. It depends on sort of the, the goals of the company or, or the platform. But I think it also depends on sort of our goals as the the viewers or experiencers of that platform, if that makes sense. You know, even just the the basic assumption you were making up front about like, well, I, th I think we can all agree, like the illegal stuff, there should be less of that. And like, yeah, I wish that were uh, as universal as it, it could be. I think there's a lot of disagreement on like what the goals should be. And we see a lot of that in the way that conversations about moderation or trust and safety play out in our broader society. You know, I'll tell a story, for example, from my time at Pinterest. So I worked at Pinterest for uh, seven years in trust and safety, primarily before coming to TSPA. And Pinterest, very different platform than Facebook, uh, as you can imagine, for a variety of reasons. But one of the expectations I think that users of Pinterest had coming into you know, their Pinterest experience every day is that it was going to be tailored to them and I wasn't going to show them anything that they weren't really expecting. It was going to show them things that could like surprise them in new and delightful ways, right? You, you came to Pinterest to be inspired by new ideas, but you want those new ideas to be relevant to who you are and like something that you you would try, you would be open to, right? You You didn't want to come to Pinterest and immediately be socked by like, here's all these controversial ideas, right? Like that's just sort of not what Pinterest was for. And so- you know, the goals in that scenario for content moderation, quote unquote, are going to be minimizing those sorts of negative experiences, right? Logging in and feeling like, ooh, this place isn't for me. And there's a lot of like complicated ways you could measure that, you know, on an actual like key performance indicators perspective. But that entire framework is not the same when you translate it to a place like Twitter, right? Where Twitter, of course, I've never worked for Twitter, but Twitter, the entire goal of Twitter is not to like 
only feed you opinions that you would like to have in your life though you know not, not to say that's pinterest either but like it's different when it's quilt patterns versus like i don't know it's um <clears throat> not quilt patterns on twitter i'm sure quilting twitter is a lovely place actually i shouldn't i shouldn't uh you know play this down but i think that the goals therefore in terms of what makes successful content moderation vary a lot right like i don't know that it would be considered successful at pinterest to say or at, at twitter rather to say all right, well, we want to like minimize challenging, um, emotionally disruptive experiences on the platform, right? Because like part of the point of Twitter is to have those experiences. Like part of the point of Twitter is to go and say, wow, there is an activist here who is doing really interesting work and I never thought about it this way. And it's actually really making me challenge my priors in a way that is good and is is sort of what Twitter is for, right? I think a lot of people had this, a lot of white people, frankly, had this experience on Twitter way later than they should have, speaking as a white person myself, you know, in the summer of 2020 and the murder of George Floyd and people were suddenly online during the pandemic in a way that they hadn't been before. And like people were really having to grapple with, well, now, wait a minute, I'm not a racist, am I? It's like, well, let's unpack that. And that's like, that's a good use of Twitter. You don't want to be like goaling around like, well, a lot of people were made uncomfortable, but that's not the same at a place like Pinterest. We're like, actually, the goal is to like make you feel seen and, and you know, customized for you and your craft journey or whatever. So all this to say, there is no one answer on like, how do you know if content moderation is being successful? I think what we want to inquire about, what we really want to interrogate is are the goals sort of set out by these platforms the goals that are right for us as individual users, as you know, groups of people, as human societies, right? Um, and that's where I think a lot of the interesting, like a lot of the interesting content moderation questions really start coming into play. Because then it's less about any one content moderation decision and more about like, what are the societies we are, or what is the society we're trying to create as a species? And that's complicated. Like anything else in content moderation, it, it is a human problem. So that's great because I wanted to ask you a, a, about the similarities and differences across platforms, and we got to a number of them then. And you know, as you as you mentioned, you worked for a few uh, Facebook and Pinterest, and now you have sort of a cross industry view from your current perch. And we we often talk about content moderation. I'm often guilty of this myself, as if it's a monolith. And in and basically, when we're talking about it, I think the framework that many of us have in our head when we're talking about it is Facebook or uh, mm -hmm. or Twitter or YouTube, and we think of that as the, you know the paradigm of content moderation and we just talk about it through that lens and you were just talking about how commercially or ideologically or sort of the product experience is different but I'm curious to hear you talk a bit more about how the operational side again going back to how the rules really depend on the capacity as well how that's different across different platforms because you know a lot of regulation talks about regulate well we can't regulate the substantive rules and you know platforms mm -hmm. have their own uh rights to define their own product but maybe we could regulate their procedures and their systems right and so then i guess an important question is how different are their procedures and their systems and their uh resourcing so you know, operationally, how different does content moderation look across all of the different platforms? Oh, and, and so, so different. Yeah. <laughs> so different. In what ways? Well, so this is this comes back to like, you know, sometimes the things that sound the most boring are in fact like the thing. Your platform architecture is everything. The way that the founders choose to like start coding your website 
end up mattering so much to the practice of trust and safety because like how you store the data really dictates how you can then use the data, right? And so much of the variance we see in the practice of trust and safety. And again, why I was saying earlier, like we we really hesitate in, in some cases to say like, well, this is the way it has to be done. That's not just like, cause we want to be wiggly about it. And now it's hard. Like it's cause like literally the data that exists at some places doesn't exist in, in an accessible way in other places or doesn't exist at all. Cause they never thought to collect it. And now it's like, Oh, wait a minute. We, we need that. We need that for a law, right? Like it, it's so dependent on decisions that are made by like founding engineering teams often you know, maybe even a decade or, or two decades before you start doing trust and safety, which feels like a long time. But in fact, it's more and more sort of old, quote unquote, old internet companies come into sort of the online space. You're now dealing with architectures that are, you know, maybe 20 years old and they were never designed in a way to cope with the realities of, of new user behavior or, or new products. That's true with, I think, even some of the newer platforms, right? As they introduce new features or as people start using them in unexpected ways, right? You suddenly realize, well, we don't have this all stored in a way that we're going to be able to query it, you know, without it costing a one gazillion dollars every time we run the query, which sounds like so pedestrian, but it's in fact incredibly true. It can be like, catastrophically expensive to find things out depending on like how some people chose to design the system, you know, six, 10 years ago. But what that means is that then I think this, where this really, I think comes into play is transparency reporting. I'm a huge fan of transparency reporting. Um, and so in good company, love to report on transparency, but woo, yes. I feel like, woo-hoo. <laughs> but I think what we, ideally can be doing is and should be doing is encouraging more and more of that, but also like accepting like sometimes that's not going to be the thing we get. And it's not because like, oh, boohoo, it's hard. It's because like sometimes it's literally impossible without like recoding the entire everything, which would just be incredibly prohibitive, right? Everything would stop working. And that feels like a, a hard answer. Because, you know, so much is possible with technology, but there are limits as well. And so I think that, again, comes back to like, what is it that we as a society are really asking for? And how are we prepared to take those answers? And if the answer is something that actually we don't like, but we as a species haven't come up with a better way to do it, how do we cope with that as a society? You know, I think those are really interesting questions. Yeah, I guess the part that's tricky there, because, you know, I, I totally appreciate that so much of this is about design and, and, you know, or forethought. And then later people come and ask for things that no one really could have thought that we'd need 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. But like the balance between that being a totally reasonable excuse for not having the information and or, you know, a platform burying its head in the sand and not collecting information because it doesn't you know, it wouldn't paint a a pretty picture or something like that. Mm -hmm. And the question of how we, you know, with transparency reporting as well, we have this sort of like perverse incentives of platforms that disclose get criticized very often. Mm -hmm. Listeners to this show will know this is, I've defined this as the YouTube problem where YouTube is a lot more opaque in my uh, opinion. And so it keeps its head down a lot. And we spend so much time criticizing like the Facebooks and the Twitters of the world in part because their data is more visible and we can see more of what's going on. Oh, Twitter. I mean, what a great example of, right? Like like here it all is. And it's like, okay, now you get to be the subject of every research paper and we're going to really, you know, it's like, oh, well, gee. And that is like, 
it'd be nice if everyone could kind of do that together, right? And there's like some incentive for that. But you're you're so right about sort of the perverse incentives. And may I just say, though we might talk about this later too, also perverse that we as an industry, here I am, I'm going to sound like a real industry shill. I just want to point out that we've been doing transparency reports for a while and mostly uh, governments don't. And so, you know, like, I think it's important to apply the same questions, right? Like we, we should demand a lot of our digital overlords, right? We should demand a lot of our tech companies and we should demand a lot of the other authorities in our lives. Right. Um, And there are all kinds of, you know, operational reasons the government's claim or, you know, this would make it difficult to do as well. Okay. But like, I think fundamentally people do have a right to know. And the answer is also not always going to be a good one, not even not a perfect one. Like it won't even necessarily be a good or complete one. And sometimes that is sort of what we have to work with right now. And I've said in the past that trust and safety is abbreviated to uh, TNS and I, I think that TNS also stands for uh, trade-offs and sadness because like so often <laughs> what's in front of you is like, yeah, it's just a bunch of like bad choices. If there were like one great way to do this by now, everyone would be doing it. And instead we have a bunch of things that actually nobody's going to like and everyone's going to be sad about for various ways. And your job as a trust and safety professional is to like understand what's in front of you on that trade-offs menu and go around and help everybody deal with their sadness that like the choices aren't better. And like, yeah, we should also be designing a world with better choices, but like that is, that is not sort of the, the job alone of the field. That's great. I'm going to redefine myself as a scholar of trade-offs and sadness. Uh, I mean, you are actually, aren't you though? Like update your Twitter bio because here it is. (laughs) Yeah. So on that, though, because there are always trade-offs in thinking about how to make these decisions, like there's no decision in any of these cases that will make everyone happy or that won't have costs, uh, like costs that, you know, everyone would also agree at costs. It's not mm-hmm. like there's one indisputably right decision. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering what you perceive as or, you know, how much variance there is in terms of the pressures that these teams are responding to when they're evaluating those trade-offs. So you can imagine a whole bunch of pressures on trust and safety teams. You know, there's legal risks, there's user retention and growth, there's advertiser pressure, there's Mm -hmm. their own philosophical commitments about what they think, you know, a good speech ecosystem is Mm -hmm. and how to balance those and really what's driving teams as they're thinking about their goal in how to make these trade-offs and how much that differs across the industry? I think the answer to this one is actually pretty similar to my answer to an earlier question, which is like, well, it depends on the goals of the business. It depends on the goals of, you know, that are being laid in front of them. You're super right to call out the complexity of incentives. Like so many things in life, so much of, of the practice of trust and safety is driven by incentives. One thing I would say is that speaking for professionals, most people in the job choose to stay in the job because they are driven by a sense of be it you know moral obligation or you know motivation to to help right some of the wrongs that they perceive in the system or in sort of society more broadly and so i think there is an intrinsic incentive that a lot of us carry with us that is independent of like, okay, and these are the company goals and you better hit the growth and here's the sales, and right? Like there's, there is a, a personal element of it that drives a lot of teams and a lot of members within those teams. 
there are then, of course, on top of that, lots of business objectives, right? Um, you know, if you're talking about like a content moderation professional, they're going to be looking at really, you know, really direct metrics, like what we would call utilization. So it's just like, how fast are they and what quality do they have as they go? Um, whether that's servicing, you know, image reports, audio reports, something that's not reported, it's just sort of coming in through the stream and you're dealing with it proactively, whatever that is. And then, you know, sort of step up from that, teams are often looking to, to, move specific metrics that they've identified for like platform health reasons. So a classic example of maybe what not to do is to say number of user reports. We want to make the number go up or down, right? Most people, I think when they look at, well, not most people, I think, I hope people have moved beyond this, but it is tempting to say, well, we want the number of user reports to go down. And like, yeah, maybe, but like, actually, you could just do that by taking away the reporting button, right? Like, hey, 100% success, hooray! Like, there are all kinds of ways you can, like, fiddle around with that and and make it not achieve what you thought you were trying to make it achieve, which is a better user experience, right? So because the user experience varies so much platform to platform, the metrics or the incentives you then use to, like, understand that vary a lot. So there's there's no... There's no one sort of metric there to share. I think that in general, there are incentives around like, you need to be sure that people are not being harmed. Though I I would say that is not a universal principle. I think it maybe should be, but it is is not necessarily. You want to be focused on reducing harm to the best of your ability to understand. And I think on top of that, you want to ensure sort of the continued survival of your platform. And trust and safety is actually quite integral to some platforms' ability to survive either sort of in the marketplace or or just sort of in human society, I guess. On top of that, you then layer a lot of sort of like regulatory incentives. And maybe we're going to talk about regulation, but I have all kinds of thoughts about like regulation. Is it necessary? And like, how do we do it? Because I think that is a really good examination of the incentives. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's go there then. Regulation. Is it necessary? <laughs> and then how do we do it? And I mean, acknowledging, of course, that you are coming at this from the perspective of the industry and of the industry professionals. But I'd love to hear you talk about what, you know, what role you think law has to play here. Because as a lawyer, uh, I obviously <laughs> think uh, it has some role to play here. But, you know, again, that could be my own uh, biases. Well, it does. Let me tell you. Um, I think there is absolutely a role for the law. And uh, the one thing I would say is like, please, God, let it be informed because regulation 100% can get results. And the question is really whether they are the results that the regulators intended. Like you write a law, presumably to like achieve a goal. Does this law actually translate to the achievement of that goal? Here's a deep cut. My earliest professional experience with regulation was with an agreement that Facebook entered into with the New York Attorney General, who at that time was Andrew Cuomo. So, hmm. Uh, And this would have been like 2007, 2008, something like that. Um, The agreement required Facebook to turn all user reports of pornography and harassing messages, uh, turn them around in 24 hours or less. And you know what? That was a good rule because we weren't doing that and we should have been doing that. And it forced a reprioritization internally that was 
better for users. And ultimately it was actually better for the longevity of the platform. Like if Facebook had kind of kept doing its 2000 summer of 2007 thing, like kind of not worrying about those porn reports stacking up, like would we have Facebook today? Maybe some people listening to this are going to be like, dang, sorry, they took the deal. <laughs> it could be better if we didn't have a Facebook today. But like, you don't know, that was back when MySpace was doing better than Facebook. So, right? so all this to say, like, it was good, but like there was a catch to it. And there was a really significant catch. The agreement stipulated that all the reports needed to be reviewed by a human. And that sounds good on paper, right? You're like, yeah, of course you need to like, you don't want any like, you know, robots. It needs to be a person. But like, here we go. When the rubber meets the road, let's say one user sends out 200 identical harassing messages and 50 of them get reported. And we would have had to review all 50 individual because even if we had a way of knowing they were the same and we could action them all at once faster, human eyeballs had to touch that report in order to comply with the agreement. So that meant that those 50 people who reported those messages had to wait several hours for a resolution we could have rendered actually the first time we encountered that message. And it meant that everybody behind them in that line had to wait those same several hours because we were having to get through those 50 you know, reports. And it was even worse with pornography, where even in those days, you could be running like basic image detection. So if a machine was like 100% confident the reported image was pornographic, and that was usually because it was like a duplicate of some other image we'd already labeled, like we could be confident even in those days, we still had to wait for a human to get around to it, which meant it was like live on the site until a human got through all the other reports to get there. So it was this amazing early lesson in unintended consequences, because at no point, I think, did the NYAG's office say to themselves, like, let's make Facebook action everything in less than 24 hours but also mandate work practices that will lengthen the turnaround time artificially so that it's really only ever actioned between 20 and 24 hours. Like that's not what they meant to do. They meant to do human review within 24 hours. It sounds good. But what they ended up causing was this like actual lengthening of, of turnaround times. It could We could have done even better, right? I think that since those times, lawmakers have gotten a much, well, <laughs> Here, my opinion, I think they've gotten a much more nuanced understanding of these kinds of consequences, not universally. I think work like, frankly, the work that, that you do really helps lawmakers understand more of those nuances. But I think we do still see gaps where laws or proposed laws are just kind of like glossing over some major operational contradictions that are inherent to the proposal. Um, and that's really where TSPA likes to have those conversations with lawmakers to say like, all right, so what you're saying is, for example, like the the current version of the DSA, which the Digital Services Act that was just agreed uh, in Europe, I think last week. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so the last version of that I saw has this whole section about appeals processes. So an appeal is where, you know, a piece of content has been removed or an account has been uh, had some sort of action taken against it. And the owner of that content or the user or the owner of that account can appeal. They can write in and say, hey, I don't like this. What happened? Explain. So the current version of the DSA has this whole section about that process, and it looks really reasonable on paper, but they're going to be like incredibly, I think, they're going to be incredibly easy to troll. And so I worry that a lot of, I worry a lot about like government imposed removal requirements because they, I think they ultimately will incentivize companies to sort of like to, to use another Americanism, to shoot first and ask questions later. Because, you know, it sounds it sounds good to say like, oh, we require a platform to remove illegal content in one hour. And we also require platforms to employ 
native German speakers, you know, for example, or whatever. But if you like want both of those things to be true at a smaller platform, you're going to like, what, keep the German guy up for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And they've tried to carve out like better categories for the non, like they're called VLOPs, very large online platforms. So they've been trying to carve out these better categories for the non-VLOPs, but they're still honestly not that hard to hit. And then, and like, then what? You've got two German guys and they alternate 12 hour shifts. And like, no, what you've actually incentivized is for the platform to like temporarily remove all reported content immediately and then wait for the German guy to come in for work and reinstate it, right? And you could see how that would have a chilling effect on speech. And it's not what the regulators meant, but it's the operational reality as those laws pass into being. And so I think, as you said earlier, like so much of this is, it's it's a very complicated system. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to make it better. We definitely need to try to make it better. But it's really finely balanced and precarious as it is. And so we have to be really thoughtful about what is it that we are requiring and does it in fact do the thing that it seems like it would? Because what we discover every day in trust and safety is we try a thing and it doesn't work the way we expect it. And that's true in law too. And so how like incentive, the thing we need to really be incentivizing is platforms to be able to be honest about the, the way that works and regulators to be able to say, okay, well, given that, here's the other way that you know we think you're going to be adequately held accountable, understanding that like we need to de-incentivize those types of adverse workarounds, you know? So from regulators, let's pivot to another person that may not understand how moderation <laughs> works in practice once you actually try doing things. I don't think I can avoid asking you about Elon Musk any longer. Oh, yeah. So with all of your experience, if you could have sort of five minutes with Elon, what would you want to tell him as he embarks on this grand new world of running Twitter? Um, what do you think based on, you know, reading the tea leaves of what he thinks content, content moderation is and, and how he thinks he should fix it what do you think he's missing and and what is he signing himself up for oh well i hope he likes congressional hearings first of all because like i think that's probably what he's signing up for totally although i'm going to be so cross if elon musk testifies before congress before susan wojcicki does like is youtube not hold before congress if elon musk beats her i'm going to be so angry i mean is there a way where he becomes the owner but then like not the ceo so he doesn't actually have to go you know like he could could work something out like that right maybe that's his game but I think I maybe already referenced Yishan uh, Wong in this conversation. He did a really interesting thread on this last week, and he's the former CEO of Reddit, so like he knows. And something he said that really struck me is just so definitional about trust and safety is he said, like, Elon's going to try to fix the problems he sees, and then each problem he fixes is just going to cause three more problems. And if I had to make a prediction, that's exactly what I would expect. And it's not because... Elon's some unique sort of bozo, right? It's because that the lesson we all learn eventually in this space is that every decision has consequences and the balance is incredibly delicate. And so when you're designing a content ecosystem, especially a safe content ecosystem, the margin for error actually just isn't that generous and and it shouldn't be. But a lot of his statements up to this point suggest that he sees a lot of like, quote unquote, fixes that he wants to try some of which I would point out Twitter has perhaps already tried and they, they don't do it like that anymore for a reason. And so with him, I, I worry he's determined to relearn those lessons the hard way. 
And I hope he's able to come in and really listen and absorb the realities of running a platform like this, especially a speech platform, before issuing any of his sort of fix-it edicts. In particular, I really hope he's able to partner with Twitter's trust and safety team. Uh, They are truly top-notch. And it is a hard thing to be Twitter's trust and safety team, but they are an incredible group of thoughtful and inventive and dedicated professionals. And I worry that's like not his vibe. Like I, I've never met Elon. I, I see his whole vibe. His whole vibe kind of strikes me as like, well, surely these wax wings won't melt when I fly close to the sun. <laughs> and it's like, I don't know, buddy, the sun is real. Like you do space stuff, you know this. And, and like, I don't know. It was funny when he like accidentally broke the cyber truck, but like it won't be funny if he accidentally breaks democracy because he wasn't paying attention to the lessons we've already learned the hard way. And like, we already have enough people who aren't learning those lessons in the ecosystem. We don't need one more. So anyway, I think five minutes is not enough. Well, five years wouldn't be enough to teach Elon Musk something he doesn't want to learn. So he's going to have to do it the way he does it. And I hope he does it. I wouldn't pay $40 billion on homework, right? Uh, but he did. I I wish him the best. And I hope he puts, I, I have small children and something they taught us at preschool is to say, you know, can you put your listening ears on? And I hope he has a real good pair of listening ears because we don't need a company run by hot takes. We need a company run by someone who knows how to listen. And that is true. And I think that is going to be very hard. Well, the good news is we are going to be, uh, we are all going to be the guinea pigs. Good news, everyone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's, there's very few certainties, I think, in, in this space, but one of them is that it continues to be interesting. So um, thank you so much uh, for your time and to bring sort of all of the the experiences that you've had and the lessons that you've learned. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for, for inviting me. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed and in our new separate Arbiters of Truth podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. Remember to subscribe to the separate feed so you can find the new episodes when they come out, and please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Seriously, that'd be great. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Bookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com forward slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Patchell-Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.